Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Now, I'm sitting here in the Bureau, in the dusty Bureau of Lost Culture, thinking to myself that this is a rather curious episode. Now, we hope that all our episodes are curious in one way or another, for we are dedicated to recollecting and collecting half-remembered, half-lost, half-forgotten, wonderful stories from the other side, from the underground, tales from the counterculture, oral testimonies, and all that wonderful stuff. But the reason that today's episode is curious is because it was meant to be something else altogether. Back in 2020, I had the idea to make a programme about a street in London called Ladbroke Grove. In fact, that programme is still being made. And I had the idea to interview one of the more famous denizens of that street, somebody who, for me anyway, is completely associated with the counterculture, the author Michael Moorcock. In a series of conversations that took place at the end of 2020, in the depths of lockdown and just before the American election, when he was in Texas where he's lived with his wife Linda for 25 years, and I was on the north coast of Scotland at a place called Findhorn, we wound and wandered our way through his life in London and in the counterculture, and we never really actually got to Labrick Grove. But I don't think you'll be disappointed. We'll return to that wonderful street on another occasion. Now, if you know Michael Moorcock, if you know his books, no introduction is necessary. If you don't, you're in for a treat. He was born in 1939 in London. He is, people would say, a British science fiction and fantasy author. He's also the editor of the magazine New Worlds and led the new wave movement in science fiction in the 1960s. But his career started much earlier when, as a teenager, in 1956, he began selling fiction to various British pulp magazines. He was the editor of Tarzan's Adventures. He also edited the Sexton Blake Library for a while. New World's magazine, you could call it the countercultural publication of science fiction in Britain in the 1960s, gave space to people like William Burroughs. J.G. Ballard, Brian Aldiss, Thomas Ditch, and covered subjects like psychedelic drugs and sexuality that had previously been taboo in the genre. Michael went on to write over a hundred books. I think he's lost count, actually. He's won awards all the way down the years. He's also played with the band Hawkwind and his own band Deep Fix. In the 80s, he kind of reinvented himself as a London writer with his books. Mother London, Gloriana, The Whispering Swarm, etc. He's cited as a friend and influenced by Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Ian Sinclair, and many other people. His characters, Elric, Corum, Holt Moon, and of course, Jerry Cornelius, are much loved by generations of readers. If you're not one of them yet, just check him out. But I warn you, it's going down the rabbit hole. And in fact, our conversations were rather like that. We wandered and wobbled around in his life and times. We cover all sorts of subjects. The Beats, J.G. Ballard, Burroughs, Soho in the 1950s, Skiffle, and of course, writing, writing, writing. The story of how he became a writer. There's also an extraordinary revelation, which I think even die-hard Moorcock fans and aficionados might be surprised to hear about. Watch out for that one. I gave up trying to edit and structure our conversation and just let it flow 
like a labyrinthine London street the way it wanted to, as I think you'll hear. Thanks again to Michael and to Linda Moorcock for facilitating this. It was wonderful to spend some time. So here we go. Without further ado, that's enough from me. Let's hear from well, I'm him. I'm not really Let's that dive straight in. for when here I was is, growing up. Michael Moorcock. But um, there were no cars parked in our streets. We lived in a South London suburb, just an ordinary one. People were not that wealthy when I was growing up. I mean, they, they, nobody was. And there was, after the war, I must say, a, a, a much more um, unified spirit. People didn't, and people felt ashamed if they were rich. They didn't like to show off, you know, their wealth, except a little bit. I think in the rock and roll days in Soho, you'd get a lot of white suits and very heavily blonded hair. Um, you know, um, big, uh, that, that sort of thing. That was probably about the start of the, the kind of, you know, a time when, when, when people started to have money. And uh, particularly when working class people started to have money in a, the same way that I did, they tended to show it off. I mean, the first time I had money, I went, I went to a funeral. So I had a bloody great Rolls Royce to do it. You know, I mean, that, that when I was in my teens and early 20s. I was earning far more money than I should have been. And, uh, you know, that's the way I sort of spent it. Um, and that's the way the uh, the first rock and rollers spent it too, you know, except they didn't buy rollers. They bought um, sports cars and and the like. Probably one of my, my, one of my best memories of Soho um, is, is walking along Dean Street and somebody shouted to me from Dean Street and it was, it was um, Tommy Steele. And, uh, and uh, somebody shouted, oh, hi, Mike. And, and they were going past. There was, there was Tommy Steele, Wee Willie Harris, and uh, I think Jet Harris. And, and they, they're all going past in, in powder blue suits um, with blonded hair in this, in this sort of great sports car. And uh, it was sort of, you know, it was the sign of, you know, we're on top of the world, you know, we're really, we're really there. And it was, it was a great, great sight. So as a teenager, you were earning enough money to get yourself a green Rolls Royce and drive it to a funeral. Uh, black Rolls Royce. Black Rolls Royce. <laughs> so how on earth were you making enough money? I was writing comics and mm. I could write comics really quickly. I was a very wealthy teenager. I wasn't such a wealthy 20-year-old and so on, but, but at that point, I was, I was making a lot of money writing comics. I mean, I could make my rent with one day's work and everything else, you know, that I needed for two days' work, and then the rest was left over for fine dining and the like. So I guess after the deprivations and the hardship of the war and, of course, the previous decade, uh, when people did get money, they wanted to show it off by material stuff, cars, clothes, you know, hairstyles and all that stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a working class thing. I mean, uh, middle class people were, 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 were much quieter about when they started to make money, as it were. Now, Michael, I believe that you have in the past described yourself as an anarchist, a cropocidist anarchist, a specific type of anarchist. Is that true? Are you an anarchist? And in fact, what is an anarchist? Kropotkin was um, a, actually a geographer, a Russian geographer, but he was an anarchist and he was an anarchist theorist. 
And he was a he was a pacifist anarchist. He wasn't a bomb throwing anarchist. I was on a television program once where I did say that I was a bomb throwing anarchist. It's partly because all the other anarchists on the program were being so bloody pious and talking about anarchism and the theory of anarchism and so on, which I do agree with. Um, but I just felt it was time somebody threw a bomb. Every so often, anarchists get like that, and it gives them a bad name, terrible name, and, I, and it's my fault. I am a, I am a theoretical anarchist. I, I, that is to say, it's a strategic position to be in, uh, because you, you actually you don't have to vote, but you can vote, particularly if it's a strategic vote, um, you know, of some kind or other. And, and basically, it's just being yourself. It's and if somebody says what what political what political shade are you you just say I'm an anarchist um, a non-practicing anarchist is what I am. <laughs> well, listen, I heard also that you you had a political background. You were a member for a while. In fact, maybe the chair were you of the West London Anti-Fascist Youth League? There's about six of us, you know, as usual. Um, most most of these. Parties of about six of us. Yeah, we um, infiltrated the, the 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 fascists' party, who are also about the same number, I would imagine, uh, maybe a few more at that time. This is the fascist party that followed mostly British Union of Fascists, which they had a shop in in uh, in Portland Road uh, near near Holland Park. In the window of the shop were records of Hitler's speeches, and the the record company was called Phoenix Records, so you can get an idea of what they were aiming for. And it was a place that had originally been run by a guy called Arnold Arnold East, and Lise had called Mosley a kosher fascist, so it didn't go far enough. And by the time we were we were um, infiltrating the organisation, and Lise was dead. And his widow was still running the organization. And now they were concentrating as much on, on black people as Jewish people. They, they decided everybody in Notting Hill is going to rise up and get rid of all these black people. As it turned out, I think Mosley stood for Notting Hill in, I think it was 59, and got something like 12 votes. It was ridiculous. The whole thing was ridiculous. Nobody, they were just, you know, they went on voting for conservatives and Labour while the fascists and anti-fascists fought their own little battle. It's fairly normal. But it was nice because Mrs. Lease, Arnold Lease's widow, was a, a sweet old lady of the sort you usually see on, uh, I don't know, Sunday night television, um, saying, <coughs> saying, you know, sitting there and asking if you wanted another um, tea cake, or whether you want you know, another cup of tea, and you're all sitting around the table while she discussed all these things. You know, we've really got to get rid of the black steer. We've really got, you know, we've really got to, you know, make sure they're all, you know, have to send them to camps. I'm afraid. Did you want another cup, dear? And it went on like that. And we we were kind of we'd infiltrated it, but we'd infiltrated nothing in a way, if you know what I mean. So that's the most interesting part of our activities. Most of the rest were just normally going around the neighbourhood, putting up posters and tearing down other people's posters. Let's return to that and to West London uh, a bit later, but I wanted to sort of back up the truck and go back down south to Norbury, uh, you know, when you were born and just before the war started. And I wanted to read you something from London Bone, and this is from the piece called The Child's Christmas in the Blitz, you wrote. Dear Jean-Luc, because you said that you were curious about my memories of growing up and celebrating Christmas during the Second World War, I'll tell you. 
Well, Christmas at that time had a special luminosity, a particular atmosphere which I've never been able to recapture, perhaps because I was born into a world darkened of necessity by conflict, in which one dull day would be followed by a black, black night, sometimes suddenly filled with noise and brilliant explosions. So that's where it all began, right? I mean, what was your first experience of London? What was London like at that time? South London had been the the worst recipient of the V-bombs. Um, what had happened was that Churchill was sending false information to the to the uh, to the German war command, which was basically that uh, all of our really serious um, installations were in Norbury and Mitcham and Streatham and, and places that in fact had no, no strategic importance at all. They were sending information back to the Germans saying, oh, you've just struck an important factory, which happened to be our house, as it were. Um, so the Germans were, were focusing the B-bombs, the B-1s and the B-2s, the rockets, onto our area. So yeah, we got a lot of, um, we got a lot of those bombs. We didn't get as much, anything like as much as the East End during the Blitz. I mean, that was the worst of it. The B-bombs were, were really terror-wept. They didn't have any functional use because they'd already lost the war. I mean, they, they, I think they were called vengeance weapons or something like that, I think, just to, you know, just to hit us in spite of them having already lost. So it was a strange thing. The war had been won almost, and yet we were being bombed a bit by the B-bombs. One did get my school, and uh, there's a film which the filmmaker made of his early life, which is pretty much exactly the same as mine and there's a there's a scene where the kid gets to school and the school's been bombed and everybody's really having a great time climbing over the ruins i was supposed to go to school around that time and and a b-bomb got the school so i was very pleased with that nobody killed <laughs> you know uh unlike you uh i'm not a born londoner i'm a, an immigrant as they say and i wondered actually you know i think that for for us incomers um, we quite often have a sort of romantic view of the city, which may or may not be shared by uh, people who were born here. And London became a whole being, you know, um, monstrous and brooding at times in your books later. Uh, was that what it was like when you were a kid, though? I mean, um, or was it just this is the world, the way it is? No, I didn't have a I didn't have a sense of it as being big and brooding because I mean I was living in a in a southern suburb anyway, so I wasn't living in the in the in the centre. It it took um, I think it's six miles to the centre from from Norbury, and it took about twenty minutes on the train to to get into the centre of London. So I knew I was a Londoner, and I but I, I we also had woods. We had two woods near us. Um, we were you know we were very much on the edge, but I could get it. So I I had all the pleasures of the countryside, if you like, and I could get into London in twenty minutes into into you know into um, Westminster or wherever. It probably gave me a big a great sense of it, possibility because my relatives were all um, oddly employed in in around London as well in different kind of things, they, they, um, very different things. Yeah, I mean, didn't you say that uh, one of your relatives worked at the, the dog track in Wimbledon and another one worked in Downing Street, the um, the home of the Prime Minister? One worked in Downing Street um, and one of my cousins worked for the Foreign Office. M- my mother always told me that his father um, bred dogs in, um, in somewhere in South 
East London. And that was, you know, that was how he, he was a dog breeder. Um, it turned out that he ran the bacon and cheese counter at the local co-op for his entire life, apparently, according to my, 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 my cousin Len. You know, that's the way family legends grow. They go, they go up and down. I mean, I mean it's strange. Because when I used to go to Downing Street um, to visit my uncle, who worked for church, he lived there, um, he'd, he'd show me a picture, a huge picture of Disraeli, uh, which stood at that point um, on the first level of the staircase in Downing Street when you started to go upstairs. Great big, you know, full portrait of Disraeli. So that, that, that's your ancestor. And, uh, you know, and so I grew up thinking that I was Jewish. I actually grew up with guilt, with um, survival guilt for the Holocaust, because I thought, well, we must, you know, we must be Jewish. Um, it turned out that uh, when uh, my wife did one of these, um, you know, DNA tests, that I couldn't be more British. That's all I've got. British. I've got nothing else in me. Um, I mean, you know, Scottish, Irish and English, that's it. And my family did this too. My family in the 1930s claiming to be Jewish and not being Jewish in any way. I mean, I don't look Jewish. And people always used to say, well, you don't look Jewish. And I said, well, I'm Jewish. You know, but I'm not Jewish. And I found this out, what, five years ago? It's a very strange thing to discover. I spent an enormous part of my life and my energy and my spirit, whatever, writing four books to try to get the Holocaust, to see how the Holocaust came about, um, out of serious survival guilt. I mean, I, I felt I had to do this because I had to pay back somehow. And then it turns out, you know, I needn't have done it. It's, it's probably the best story of all. And, I, and it's too late to tell it, too. I mean, I'm too old. <laughs> well, you've, you've just told it. That's extraordinary. Um, you know, I've got to say, Michael, I mean, it's kind of just desserts, though, isn't it? Because in your autobiographies, like books like The Whispering Swarm, which are purported to be autobiography, fiction uh, creeps in. They get fictionalized. And now it's kind of turned around and bit you on the bum because it turns out that your um, actual biography uh, was part fiction. Yes, yes that's right. <laughs> Not the bit I thought was fiction. <laughs> there we go. Revelations. Uh, uh, Michael Moorcock is not Jewish after all, after all, <laughs> all that time and all that writing. Um, well, listen, the actual uh, Moorcock Jr., I mean, that's fairly extraordinary. I mean, you know, you might have grown up in an ordinary suburban house in South London, but unlike most other South London suburban teenagers, um, you started writing various fanzines and comics and stuff. And as you've said, you know, by the time you were a sort of late teenager, you were pretty rich by teenage standards and living the life rather. So just tell us about that first part of the journey that got you from suburban Norbury to uh, teen superstar Moorcock. Well, I mean, I did what every teenage superstar does, which is to, you know, to, to hire a Rolls Royce or buy a Rolls Royce. I was pursued by Mark, Mark Bowler one time um, down the Brook Grove, him, him in a Rolls Royce and me on my bike. Um, I didn't like Mark Bowler and I didn't want to speak to him. So and he, he, was, he was shouting out after me. And eventually the, 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 the Rolls Royce mounted the, the curb as I mounted the curb on my bike to try and get away from the bugger. But anyway, that's not the story you asked. I left school at 15. 
the idea was that I was going to do evening classes or something. I just wanted to get away from school, and I said I'd do anything to get out of school. And I got a job, um, a shipping company. I, I doubt if there are very many of this kind of shipping company around anymore in the city where I had to take bills of lading and such things to various embassies to get signed, and then I had to take them down to the docks um, so I was moving between the West End and the, the East End all the time at that point to the, you know, to the Pool of London, back to um, Ke the Kensington embassies and, and that sort of thing. So I, so I was having quite a lot of experience that I hadn't had as a boy. And uh, the streets were still in, in the city, demolished. I mean, uh, you, you fr frequently walk between huge huge mounds of rubble. So I saw a lot of the city when, when it was still blitzed. It had a strange atmosphere because you could see the 18th century city better than you could see the 19th century city. The 19th century city, of course, had been bombed. And so that had gone down. But things like the monument and St. Paul's and the various other 17th century, 18th century buildings had remained. So there was this sort of Palladian, this being more in the 18th century, and walking between the monuments of the 18th century that were visible than there was, say, of, of, of the 20th, when these the monuments are obscured by larger buildings and, and, and so on. So it was very interesting to be able to do that. Also, we had a huge shipping industry. I mean, we were the, we were the center of, of, of an empire, of a huge empire, still at that point. So the ships were still coming in. And the pool was still full, and you know the docks were still still alive in a way that now they're only alive with the newspaper offices or whatever. Um, strangely, and so I, I did get a very strong sense of historical London. I think um, more of the eighteenth and, and, and more of the seventeenth and eighteenth than, than of the nineteenth. Mm. Um, so maybe that's what I put into Whispering Swarm too. You've talked before about how that idea of London as a being, um, rather than just as a sort of place or a conurbation, you know, which started off with uh, Daniel Defoe and then with Dickens, um, grew into a thing for you too. So when you were making those journeys um, across the city, west to east, through those streets where, you know, the previous Londons, the layers of London were peeping through the war damage and the subsequent demolition and stuff. Is that when that started to uh, take shape for you, London as being? Yes, it was definitely there because they weren't peeping through, they were dominating. These are monuments that had dominated until the 19th, 20th centuries. So they were dominant at that point uh, before, the, before the rebuilding started. So in a sense, you, 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 you had a clearer idea of the 18th century than you did of the 19th, um, although you had a very strong sense of the 19th in the parts of the city that were still strangely unbombed. One side would be bombed, the other side would be pristine. Um, it, 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 you know, that's, that's what bombing does. Like fires, it's the same thing. It, you know, it just leaves these strange... Mm. strange um, Anomalies and those anomalies—they um, started to infiltrate through your work. Because I mean, you—you you had been writing, you know, fantasy fiction largely um, in the early sixties, you know, set in other worlds. But now, with Cornelius, etc., it started to take root in the 20s. city. By the time I was in my early twenties, my ambition was 
to write, to produce a, a sense of the city that was that had the same sense of myth that I'd written about in the early Elric stories. I I felt that you know the Elric stories were all right, but they didn't relate to the present time. It's very frustrating. You can't write the sort of sorcery story about really about, um, you know, I don't know, about, about some modern event. And it's frustrating when there's all this modern stuff going on and you haven't got a technique to deal with it. So the first thing I did was, in, it was early 65, I, I wrote a novel called The Final Programme, which was the first Jerry Cornelius novel, in an attempt to try to start dealing with the mythology of London rather and the mythological creatures of London, if you like, rather than... Um, turning all this into a, you know, maybe a fun story, but 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 with limitations, think places you couldn't go to with it. I was looking for a, I was looking for a technique that would take me wherever I wanted to go. So and Cornelius, I mean, he he sort of he changes, doesn't he, from the being this kind of very upmarket sort of swinging sixties spy kind of, but you as he goes on, you sort of start to locate him. With a more humble past, don't you? And he he, he had you know he had the humble past all along. His, but 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 he also had the um, the posh past. His father his father was the posh scientist who we don't really ever meet, and his mother was Mrs Cornelius who we meet a lot, and uh, who is as I once said an idealised version of the mother I never had. Um, she, she's um, she, she really is. I, I love Mrs. This is my favourite character in all, all of my books. And uh, so, yeah, and, I mean, don't forget, his mother also claimed to have had it off with Trotsky and various <laughs> other um, famous figures of the past. So, so you can't be absolutely sure that his father was even a scientist. Um, I hope you can't be absolutely sure. <laughs> and what about the, what about the rumour that um, uh, Cornelius owned or owns Derry and Tom's, the sort of groovy London department store in, in Kensington is with the roof garden. Is that true? No, he yeah. doesn't. No, I'm afraid not. If he owned Derry and Tom's, <laughs> if he owned Derry and Tom's, it would be a much nicer place. No, um, he's, he doesn't own anything. I mean, being an anarchist, how could he? No. <laughs> it's he just may he know get... a few people who do own a few things. That, that's, uh, that's probably, that's the, that's the closest he gets. Um, like me, really. I know a lot of people who own a lot of things. I just don't know, <laughs> I don't know a lot of things. Well, so Michael, we, we're wending our way sort of slowly west towards Ludbrook Grove, but way before we get there. So you've got this job, which means that you can wander around this layered London, uh, which is kind of prompting your imagination. But you were also writing at the same time. I mean, tell us how that was working. Yes, um, and that was the thing about it. I, I mean, I was on my own for most of the time. I was travelling between places or sitting around waiting for somebody to stamp something or whatever. So um, I had plenty of time to read and, and to write. And so I was producing fanzines at the time. I eventually left that job because... Uh, well, it was a nightmare. That's why I left it. There were there were something like twenty four people working in a small room as the, the the firm's expanding, but it didn't expand its premises, and the heat was getting appalling. I mean, it was just it was an old Victorian building above a um, a warehouse, a um, coffee warehouse, a great smell, which 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 actually counted the smell of Billingsgate, which was also very close to us. So we had fish and coffee. And I left that job to get a job at Harold Whitehead and Partners, who were in Torres Street and 
St. James's Park. They were a totally, it was a totally different job. I mean, uh, they, they were management consultants, so they already had a sense of how things could be. That was their job, you know, to go into a firm and see what was wrong, see what could work, see what, and give a recommendation. They almost immediately promoted me to junior consultant. I think they didn't have any junior consultants, but they, they sort of liked the cut of my jib. I think it was very much that sort of thing. The boss liked me, everybody liked me except one woman who really disliked me, but then everybody else hated her. So I was all right. And they were all trying to find me something I should do because they, they saw, you know, here I was a bright young chap, you know, writing. And they said, they let me use their um, reproduction machines, uh, which in those days were not Xeroxes, but Roneos, which ran on a sort of Lincoln paper system. And uh, I started turning out enormous numbers of fanzines and, and they were getting better and better quality because I, was got, I had better quality um, printing means. I was getting good artists and, you know, people from the science fiction community, which was very small. So people who worked in the professional science fiction world also worked in, in the fanzine world. So I had all, you know, it was great. So I, I could send this fanzine off and get, be sure, pretty sure of getting an interview from somebody because they looked a lot more professional than most did. And so I got a, a, an interview with the editor of a magazine called Tarzan Adventures because one of my enthusiasms was Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author of Tarzan. And uh, I thought, well, we'll have an article about him in it. So I did, the, I, I did the interview. I was totally disappointed in the man and said so. I said, he's a crap editor and he didn't do this, he didn't do that, and so on. And I was very disappointed. Sent him a copy, of course, whereupon he wrote me a note saying I would never work in Fleet Street, which was um, actually odd because I went on to work in Fleet Street, whereas he was never heard of again. <laughs> but that's another story too. And then I got a note from his, his assistant saying, uh, if you'd like to come and work for us and be assistant editor, editor of Tarzan Adventures, um, we'd love to have you aboard because everybody also had hated this man, which I didn't know, and had thoroughly enjoyed the article that I'd written. It's always good to know these things, you know. There's always somebody, if, if they don't like you, there's always somebody who does like you. <laughs> I mean, there's a bit of a lesson there, isn't it, then? So that's it. So uh, just say it how it is, tell the truth, and uh, yeah, that'll it do does. the work for it does. you. At least end. when you're young. Probably it's a bit harder when you get when you get older, but, but it's, a, it's a very good thing to, to, to do when you're young. People will allow you to do it, you know, because, oh, well, he's young. Uh, so I got this job on Tarzan Adventures, and, and uh, Alistair, the, the, uh, Alistair Graham, the editor, had only been planning to stay there another six months because he was going to go off to Spain and play his banjo. I mean, he was in a folk group. And uh, we were in a skiffle group together uh, after a little while. After six months, um, Alistair left and I became editor. And, and, and thus, I became the youngest editor in Fleet Street. Not that I was in Fleet Street, but I was very near Fleet Street. And after that, I just sort of carried on from there. I was, um, I was too young to be a part of the uh, committee of the union. Um, I was active in the NUJ, but, um, but, I, uh, but I, couldn't, I couldn't be on the committee because I was still under 21. And there's a whole thing whereby you had to have five years experience or be over 21. Anyway, as soon as I was about to get fired from Fleetway, luckily my 21st birthday came up and they bunged me on the committee. I kept my job. 
until I didn't want it anymore. <laughs> I want to know what the uh, young uh, Moorcock looked like because I've I think I've um, read this description of you wearing with green carnations and red crushed velvet trousers. And is that all? Is that it? Were you this kind of flamboyant uh, creature parading through the city? I, I had an Oscar Wilde period. I bought myself a, a, a strange broad-brimmed hat which I think had been meant to be a Stetson, but it was it was for sale in the hatch. And a, and a coat that looked as close to an Edwardian coat as, as I could find. In, in those days, very little. There's nothing like the, the, uh, the kind of amount of different kinds of clothing you can buy now in, you know, in retail shops. You had to either modify it or, you know, or, um, or be a teddy boy, I suppose. I felt that I, I looked too healthy, so I would put white, um, talcum powder all over me to make me look more pale <laughs> and, and, and interesting because I thought healthy people, you know, you, you couldn't you couldn't really be a um, an aesthete and, and look as, as as robust as I did. I just I just looked too healthy for the for the part. <laughs> anyway, I wore that for a while until my mates um, until my mates laughed me out a bit. I mean, you know, I had enough people telling me what an idiot I was I looked and so forth for me to stop it eventually. But but for a while I was I was a um, a late nineteenth century aesthete. Getting on the bus in Norbury is a late nineteenth century aesthete. Absolutely. I got on the bus in Norbury dressed like that. Um, and then if I was on top of the bus I'd have a migraine attack whereupon I'd be violently sick so it ruined the entire image. <laughs> I, I was I was quite good at making images for myself, but I was also terrible at keeping the image. I'd, I'd just lose it. I I told kids at school that I was um, um, that I was Mowgli and that I you know that I was brought, raised by wolves in the jungle because it, um, it was a Steiner school and Kipling wasn't wasn't thought very highly of there, and so nobody knew about Kipling except me. So I told him all this, and then, of course, I was forced to climb a tree to prove it and got stuck up the tree and couldn't get down. And the kids were the same, well, come on, Mowgli, how'd you get down? And it rather ruined my... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds, sounds quite formative. All right, so so there you are. You get on the bus from Norbury in your, in your splendour, uh, and then you get to, <laughs> you get to the office. Uh, hang your floppy hat up on a hook, and then uh, it would get down to work pounding out the, pounding out the uh, literature, right? Oh, I'm not pounding out anything. No, 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 no. The minute, the minute we get to work, we start playing um, uh, poker dice, which was the big <laughs> thing at the time. No, 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 there was no pounding at Fleetway in those days. We were heavily unionised, a great thing, and uh, we had nothing to do until you know we had about two hours work a week. So we we um, we tended to sp- spread the week. we we did all our all our um, typing work was done at home because that was freelance and you got paid for it as a freelance. Um, Fleetway's method was to pay you the basic union minimum. You got the union minimum, and you're expected to make up that minimum by writing for another periodical, not your own. You weren't allowed to write for your own, which was silly because we were all in the same offices. You know, it was, we were all mixed up together anyway. Uh, there, there's some terrible, terrible, I mean, really bad crookery going on there. I mean, people, people you could steal from Fleetway. It was so easy. I didn't ever once, uh, no once, except pencils and stuff like that. 
Um, but you could steal by cooking the, the pay sheets. You could you could you could make a fortune. And one man did. He uh, he he died of a, a very unhappy illness. But before he died, he bought half of Clapham with the money he'd made from 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 his various scams at Fleetway. It was how you filled out the pay sheet, basically, and uh, that's how it worked. I discovered it, took it to my boss, who told me to shut up about it because it turned out my boss was also in on the scam. I was the only person who wasn't. So that was um, my my discovery of shocking conspiracies and you know nasty business. I, I learned pretty early on that you know that uh, that that you know that people go crooked pretty quickly. I mean. <laughs> And uh, I don't know if I would have done or not, but I didn't at that time. I was I was shocked and disgusted and wrote several very bad stories about it. <laughs> so so when were you writing the comics then? I was writing comics at home and selling them to Fleetway, essentially. What I was doing was ordinary editorial work at Fleetway, which was laying out comics, laying out annuals. I was working on Sexton Blake, so most of my work was on a small paperback thriller series, which came out twice a month. Um, that was that. That was my first job, which is to check manu- you know, look, read manuscripts, do blurbs, all all the usual stuff. Um, and the comic stuff was done um, because I was part of that team. We all worked on similar things. I worked in the office with the um, the guys who did Lion and Tiger comics, which were very popular. They were sort of most popular comics of the time, and I wrote for those. And I also wrote for Thriller Picture Library and Cowboy Picture Library. I was particularly fond of Kit Carson, <clears throat> who, now I live in Kit Carson country, I discovered was, was actually more of a hero than I, than I thought he would be, um, but not at all like the Kit Carson I was writing about. Is that why you ended up, uh, you and Linda, living in Texas? Yes, it was pure romance and it was foolish. It was the stupidest thing I ever did in my life. 25 years. I could have been living in California. Linda wanted to go to California, but I didn't because I thought I was only going to be here for a short time and that I could learn the culture, you know, learn the mysteries of the culture as I saw it, or at least try. And then we'd be on again and we'd probably be off to California or we thought of Ireland as well. Um, I just didn't want to live in England anymore at the time. No, did Linda. Linda Linda's American, and well, as you know, and uh, she'd had so much shit in in England, Americans get an awful lot of shit. They put up with it, usually because they're so um, so enamoured of the English that they'll accept it. Um, Linda is not enamoured of the English. Her 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 um, her remark is that um, if I'd have known they were not all like him, I'd never have gone. Um, she thought all the English were going to be like me for whatever reasons, <laughs> and uh, and they weren't. And she was insulted many times, um, casually insulted in my presence. I mean, I wouldn't have believed it uh, if I if I hadn't been there. Um, and sh- and being not enamoured of the English, she um, she tends to prefer Ireland and Scotland. Actually, probably we we probably if we'd had a, if we had our others, we'd be living in Scotland. I'm not saying that because you're currently living in Scotland, but that's that's where she was happiest, and where I mean we were very very like like it there. Maybe Neil will let us go and live on his island with him. <laughs> yeah, Neil Gaiman, he's got that uh, place on that tiny island off the 
coast of Skye, which if anybody doesn't know is a wonderful, magical, mysterious island off the co- west coast of Scotland. We spent a bit of time there. Uh, but circling right back, so you're off Fleet Street playing poker dice, uh, turning in comics, and you left Norbury by then, hadn't you? So where were you I, living? I lived in, um, let me see, um, I lived in Chelsea for a bit, which was in those days just an ordinary, you know, slightly rough area, actually most of Chelsea. Um, it wasn't it wasn't King's Road as it is now. It's just an, you know, just a regular, just a regular main street with ordinary shops in it. A few slightly posh ones, but nothing much. Um, and I lived in uh Holloway for a while, in a in a in a house owned by Mr. Usher, which became significant because whenever the traffic went past, the whole place shuddered and you, you felt it was about to fall down any moment. Anyway, that was that was the house of Usher. Um, yeah, I, I lived in one or two um, you know, places around London. Usually cheapness was the main reason um, because I was living at home. That was the other why I was so rich for a while. I was living at home when I first started to get rich. That that was when I was writing comics and could make. I was making a huge amount of money, and I was not really paying a lot to my mother for my for my um, overheads. So, and I wasn't living at home very much. Um, but I, I was tending to sleep at you know at uh, friends' houses and that sort of thing, and gradually getting into what you might call the life of a Soho bohemian, which is, I suppose, what we were. And again, there are about eight of us. I mean, <laughs> these days it's almost impossible to give somebody an impression of how small the world was when I was growing up and how few people there were who did what you did. I mean, it was, you pretty much knew everybody, all the, you know, all the musicians knew everybody, you know, perhaps casually, but, but everybody knew everybody in that, in that sense. There just weren't that many of us. Right, and you, so you're moving around the city and things are starting to happen, obviously countercultural stuff starting to happen. And was music part of your life then as it later became? I mean, were you, were you, were you listening to a lot of music? Yes, I really was. I was, I was into blues and I was into, um, I suppose you'd call it American protest music, Woody Guthrie and, and Pete Seeger. I actually corresponded with both of them. Um, again, it's, it's a small world, you know. I, I wrote to Pete Seeger, he wrote back. I wrote to Woody Guthrie, he wrote back. I mean, it, it was it was a it was a it was a pretty small world, and so I, I, I had a good correspondence with them, and I learned a lot. Of course, I, um, there was an American magazine I think called Sing Out. It was either there was one called Sing and one called Sing Out. I think Sing Out was the American one, and it was a folk, folk magazine, and it had all the you know, all the usual people in it of the day, and uh, Dave Van Ronk, people like that. Um, and, of course, the early Dylan was coming up, who I dismissed on his first album because he sounded so much like Guthrie that I thought he was just another Guthrie imitator, as I was, um, so, I, so I knew the kind. Um, and uh, I, I, when we were doing gigs, I really used to ruin gigs by doing long Woody Guthrie songs, you know, the... Um, <laughs> mining disasters and things of that kind, which, which weren't really, you couldn't really dance much to them. And that's what we've been hired for. Um, so, so I'd start doing all these long Woody Guthrie songs. Um, anyway, that, yeah, and blues, of course, in the shops that imported American records at great expense. 
um, they cost you more than an English record would. And the one that we used was a shop called The Swing Shop in Streatham, which almost every um, blues musician I know uh, knows The Swing Shop in Streatham because it was run by a jazz guy who hated rock and roll and just hated it but he had to sell it so you'd have to go there and endure his sneers and contempt because he's the only one who had these records and, and you know buy your buy your um your blues records or your rock and roll records very early um well skiffler come rock and roller um originally i was very snotty about rock and roll the way all skifflers were and then gradually we we uh, we combined our talents because there weren't that many talents to combine. <laughs> <laughs> and in Soho uh, itself, it was pretty it was pretty groovy, wasn't it? Kind of international uh, feel to it and uh, some very cool clubs. There was um, the Skiffle Club in Greek Street, um, which was really where all the blues people and the Skiffle people hung out. And then there was the Two Eyes in Compton, Old Compton Street, which is where all the rock and roll people like Tommy Steele and co all hung out. Um, and the skiffle scene grew into the blues scene with uh, people like Alexis Corner, mm. who were already into blues. Um, and Alexis used to run a kind of blues workshop where he talked about the blues and played blues riffs and so on. So you could you could learn quite a lot from from Alexis Corner, who really was the the core. Even though he wasn't very good himself, I mean, he had a terrible voice himself. But he, he, he really was the core of the whole London rock and roll scene. The Liverpool rock and roll scene was quite different. It was, it was, it was to do with Buddy Holly, the, the, the good American rock and rollers. We were more blues. I mean, we were Muddy Waters and, and Sonny Boy Williams and people like that. Were you also at that time becoming aware of the beats um, in America? And that there was this thing, you know, the counterculture sort of growing around you or with you oh yeah absolutely it was there before um the, the beat um uh alan ginsburg's um howl was incredibly popular i mean everybody had a copy of howl um, i wasn't that impressed by by either by ginsburg although i like they had i like to love his phrases um or by kerouac um i'd met Kerouac, Paris, when I was a kid, when I was 16, um, there was a friend of mine from, I, I was visiting him, he was a friend from San Francisco and he knew them. I only you know, met them to say hello, not, you know, how are you doing, sort of thing. Um, I knew William Burroughs pretty well, but that was, of course, later. He was sort of the last of the beats, really. I thought Kerouac was very conventional, but Burroughs, I was really impressed by. I mean, to me, Burroughs was the only real genius to come out of that whole movement most original and interesting and the first one to start dealing with the interface you know, between modern man and the modern world in, in a way that that they just hadn't done they they were still far too nostalgic it was still the old america that was kind of firing them up it was that was their engine which is fair enough but it was not fired burrows up i, I was very highly admiring of him yeah, and he came to uh, to live in London, didn't he? And he lived in lived uh, here for quite a long time. And uh, so that whole countercultural thing—that was a, you had this feeling that that was something that you wanted to be part um, of. I didn't want to be part of it. We were it. It was, it was you know, it wasn't that there was just us. And again, it wasn't that many people. Um, so we and we all you know we all got together. We met in coffee bars. We were, we had a, a pub, a little cafe. 
and a betting shop. And that was kind of our world for a long time. I mean, we just we just met in the pub. We drank in the pub and, and I didn't bet, but um, but those who did went across and bet, put their money on whatever they were putting it on, on the betting shop. And then when we were hungry, we ate in a little cafe and that was about it for quite a long time. There, there are obviously other places where other people were doing a similar thing, but there were probably only about three other places like that where people were doing a similar thing. We, we didn't describe ourselves as being beatniks or anything like that. I mean, we were rather disgusted at being called anything, I think. We were, I think, by the newspapers probably called beatniks. Most of us wore um, duffel coats, you know, those big <laughs> duffel coats, because they were cheap. They were all ex ex-service um, coats. Yeah, there were a navy blue one or a khaki one. There was, that was, those were the two, two kinds you could get. <laughs> and meanwhile, I mean, this is uh, 1961, you've already published your first novel, right? No, 61, I started publishing in, 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 uh, seriously in magazines, in, in adult magazines. And uh, that was the, uh, the first Elric story. Um, I had written, I'd sold several stories to Carnell before that, but they weren't, they were just, pretty conventional stories, nothing much. Still working at Fleetway. I met Carnell in the pub across across the street from Fleetway with some friends who just, they just happened to be mutual friends. He was getting nostalgic. He was saying, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind a story. You know, try a story. I like the old Coleman stories. Remember those? Yeah, this and, that. and I said, yeah, you know, I can, I, I always did. I can do you that. Because, you know, it's like an actor. I can write that. You know, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> I once did a whole series of speedway stories in which I unfortunately had the speedway going the wrong way around the track, the, the cars going the wrong way around the track, because um, I'd said I was a speedway Didn't That didn't last for very long. So I, I, I'd actually started to write a Conan story some years before at someone else's request, but the magazine had folded. And so I sort of looked at it and gave that to Carnell. And he said, well, actually, I didn't want a Conan story. I wanted a new story. You know? so, I, so I thought, OK, I'll try and do something that's as different as possible from the, you know, from the other sword and sorcery stories. There weren't that many about. I tried to do something that was, wasn't Lord of the Rings and wasn't Conan. And it was the first Elric story. And that was published in 61 in, in uh, Science Fantasy. And I thought that was the only story. I mean, I just thought it was another story and I'd be on my way doing something else. <laughs> and little did you know that 60 years later, you would still be writing an Elric story. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, was, it, it went well. And I, I never expected anything to go particularly well. You know, I, just, I was just a working writer. I'd never had a success, as it were. And so I thought, OK, fine. You know, it was, I think, two guineas a thousand. He never put my rates up, never put them up. Yeah, Jimmy Ballard and Brian Aldis, he put their rates up as they started to sell. Never put mine up, the bastard. Anyway, um, I'm a fast writer, so I started writing him Ulrich stories and other stories of the same kind with Lord of the Rings they started this whole fantasy thing in England, and with Conan in America, that was uh, those are the three basically the three things that started the fantasy revival. I mean, the living writers anyway. It revived the dead ones as well, but mm. that's another story. Fritz Leiber, um, Fritz Leiber, me, I think, and Tolkien were the only three writers writing that kind of thing, and all very different. Yeah, and then two or three years later, you get offered the editorship of New Worlds, the science fiction magazine. And you're still really young, even though you're published, and you've been doing all this, you know, comic, uh, magazine-type work, editing, writing. So you've kind of got the craft down. But, the, you know, you get offered this editorship, you come in, and, of course, you know, famously... 
you change it and it's the start of this you know so-called new wave of British science fiction you know which brings in all sorts of other things that hadn't been traditionally going on in that genre and um, you know so who, who was it I mean tell us about that time you know when you took over and who was there with you and what you were doing there were three of us um, Jimmy Ballard JG Ballard and um, a writer who's not very well known now at all, but deserves to be called B.J. Bailey, Barry Bailey. And we were all very close friends. We were all um, tired of science fiction. We'd all read it and we'd all written it, but we were, we were just tired of the, of the, of the way it was going. It was, we, we were tired of partly, it was nothing to do with spaceships or anything. We weren't interested in spaceships, but we weren't rejecting spaceships. You know, people, the story goes, the usual kind of news story goes, rejecting spaceships, ray guns and, and aliens, Moorcock and Ballard, let's say, and so-and-so got the new wave going and, and, uh, and made it all about the interior interior world and uh, you know the mind and so on and that's not really how it worked we, we 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 didn't we weren't interested in space stories barry was i wasn't i didn't really i couldn't really i'd never interested in space people landing on the moon and all that stuff just left me uninterested it was something in the distance that you weren't particularly interested a friend of mine jack trevor story believed until his dying day that the whole space race was a fake and that it, that it was fake news and it had been made up in a TV studio somewhere in, uh, I think, in Newcastle. Um, but anyway, that was Jack. What we'd looked for originally in science fiction, at least as adult readers, was the same kind of substance we got from a really good non-SF novel. And we, 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 they, they just didn't exist. They didn't have enough references. They didn't radiate enough. They didn't, they didn't spark off enough other ideas. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't, I suppose... Literary, and I and I don't like to use that word because um, among I'm one of the people who who made popular popular, as it were. You know, I mean, pop pop art and 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 all that stuff went together. We were all part of the same people doing it. We were trying to interest the, if you like, the um, academic world in the merits of popular art, and we were trying to interest people who are interested in popular art in the merits of high art, we were just trying to bring them together. And, and it seemed to us that science fiction was the ideal place to produce that. Um, for one thing, it had very, it, it didn't have very highly intelligent readers who we assumed were flexible enough to absorb this, this kind of fiction we want, and to, you know, to read, read it and feedback and so on, because you can't do it in a, in a vacuum. It was sheer frustration. The best of the writers were people like Kingsley Amis, who weren't that good. I mean, they were supposed to be, but they weren't. They didn't measure up in any way to the, to, to the best writers with the most you know, going for. Bill Burroughs was one of them, mm. for sure. Um, and we had one, as far as I was concerned at the time, and that was J.G. Ballard, um, who at, at the time was just another science fiction writer. And but who I, I could tell was much more than that and felt was much more than that. I mean, we were close friends, but, but I, we, I suppose we were close friends precisely for that reason, I don't know. And uh, um, so, so I, I, I tended to use Burroughs and, uh, and Ballard as the, as the kind of um, loads. And, and one of the reasons you like science fiction is because it has 
big ideas in it. It has a strong idea, or a good science fiction story, have a strong idea that you can then do things with. You can turn it into a metaphor for the present day world, but you can also be writing about that particular idea and how people respond to it, what it does to people's minds, uh, to, to society as a whole, how, how it affects them. All these things were kind of in science fiction, but only in little bits here and there, you know, the occasional story. We wanted to produce stories and have people, you know, expecting stories that were that good, that were as good as we could possibly make them as individuals. And the one thing that I wanted to do as well with, with the writers that I was coming into New Worlds were to keep them individual, not to have them writing genre stories, but having to write exactly how they wanted the story to go themselves, not how it should go according to genre. Um, and there are a number of other ideas as well. When when we, when I started, you know, I opened the doors of the magazine, you know, Monday morning, open the doors of the magazine. Come in, writers. Come in, writers. You know, lots of enthusiastic readers. Here we are at last. You know, we're finally you know, doing something you really want. And we got nothing. And the writers complained, and there weren't, uh, the readers complained, and the writers didn't turn up. It took, it took about a year of very careful editing to get, to get both actually going. Um, and luckily, I'd already worked on two magazines that had changed enormously and their readerships had complained in both cases one was tires and adventures and the other was sexton blake library but there had been radical changes within both of those and i knew that if you could get the readers familiar with what they were complaining about they would then start to distinguish between the things they were complaining about and start to say well that, yeah that ballard story was pretty good but that you know that bailey story is pretty crappy or whatever you know they start to see see something there rather than rejecting the whole thing music's exactly the same people say oh i can't stand that rap oh that raps oh god oh man that's not music you know and then they listen to it and they say well maybe there's something oh yeah so it's right yeah and that's the way it goes it's the way culture goes all the time then comes fashion which of course destroys culture fashion takes culture and turns it into a commercial object, something you can flog to somebody for something or make somebody, you know, feel proud of owning or whatever. And um, that's fashion. And fashion doesn't last. And unfortunately, fashion takes with it a lot of the good sometimes that, that, that the culture has delivered. Um, you know, it takes over punk. Um, and so punk just becomes a, a fashion and, mm -hmm. and nothing more. Mm -hmm. The things that the original punks were saying, which was exactly what the original hippies were saying, I mean, that's basically the original hippies, the original punks got together. I mean, they, they didn't, there was never really any rivalry between them. Um, just what happens, at least it's certainly been happening for the last couple of hundred years, you know, within our culture as, as it is now. It's almost inevitable. It's happened to me several times, of course. I've been through several generations of fashion. Um, you just have to keep your own your own uh, mind and don't, don't listener I'm jumping in here to this conversation because we've run out of time that wasn't the end of our conversation in fact uh, talking to Michael went on for many more hours and we are going to return to hear more of him of his life and times in the counterculture and as a writer on a future occasion but we're going to pause it there for today thank you to michael and to linda moorcock for spending that time it was like being with a sort of rather wise witty 
uh, curious grandfather for me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it too, and thank you for listening. And you can check out all our programs at bureauoflostculture.com. You can send us an email if you like at bureauoflostculture at gmail.com and let us know the guests that you might like to hear from or any other thoughts. Do leave us a review if you listen to this via any of the major podcasters and come back next time for more tales from the counterculture, more tales from the underground and beyond. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I was Stephen Coates.